Open your Bibles with me once more to the Gospel of John this morning, where we have been sitting in as flies on the wall on some of the greatest person-to-person encounters, some of the most significant one-on-one get-togethers that ever were held. Various people here in John's Gospel face-to-face with Jesus of Nazareth, face-to-face with the Son of God. And today we eavesdrop on another of those conversations, this one taking place in the governor's mansion here in John chapters 18 and 19, and specifically we'll begin reading in a moment in John 18, 28. Jesus, after the marvelous encounters about which we've been reading in the recent weeks, and after all the wonderful ministry he has performed, Jesus, you may remember, coming to the end of the Gospels, finds himself in the crosshairs of the religious muckety-mucks in Israel, of the Pharisees and the chief priests and so on. They feel threatened by him, fearing that the people will give allegiance to Jesus and not to themselves, and that they will lose their place on their self-appointed pedestals. And so way back in chapter 11, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, there began to be a plot against Jesus' life. And here in chapter 18, that plot is unfolding with Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and with his being questioned by Jewish authorities, first of all. And yet, for reasons that we will see in a moment, if these Jewish leaders are indeed to get rid of Jesus, they're going to need the help of the Roman authorities as well, who have taken over the land of promise at this point, and who wield the heaviest gavel in these kinds of matters. And so, in the wee hours of the morning, after the plot has been unfolding overnight, in the wee hours of the morning, the Jewish authorities make their way with their prisoner to the praetorium, to the governor's official residence, as you might see it in the NASB footnote, in which Pilate, the current governor, not only lives, but also has his judgment seat. And we arrive with them at Pilate's place, beginning here in John eighteen twenty-eight. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, 
But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man... So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them. To be crucified. Father, we thank you that Jesus was crucified on our behalf, that he died for our sins, and yet we see these men tangled up in making it happen with sinful motives. And as we look at one of them, as we look at Pilate today, God help us to really see what's going on with him and to see ourselves and to be where and to flee to Christ and to be on his side. And we ask in his name. Amen. It was interesting to me and instructive this past Friday to walk through this passage, noticing and sometimes giving my best interpretation of Pilate's demeanor throughout this trial toward Jesus toward Jesus' accusers, and just toward the whole situation in general. And not only noticing his demeanor, but noticing how his demeanor changes as the events move along, and noticing when and why his demeanor changes, and thinking about what that tells us about this most famous now of all Roman governors. I hope that makes sense what I'm saying I did, because I'm about to do it for you. I walked through this passage thinking specifically about Pilate's own personal demeanor, his attitude, his carriage of himself throughout this trial, and noticing the vacillations in his demeanor and looking at the apparent reasons for the changes in his attitude, and then trying to think about what all this says to us 
about Pilate. And of course, the reason why we want to understand Pilate is so that we can perhaps better understand ourselves and those to whom we seek to minister Christ. And of course, we want to understand Pilate as well so that we can avoid repeating his folly. It's hard sometimes to read demeanor or attitude on the black and white of the printed page, just like it's hard to hear someone's tone of voice sometimes in a text or an email. You sit there sort of wondering. So I admit that up front, and I admit that I'm trying to interpret what I think Pilate is thinking, what's going on inside of him. But let me give you now my effort at looking at the cues that John gives us here as to what's going on with Pilate and trying to figure this Roman governor out so that we can figure ourselves out and have a head start as we try to minister to the Pilates who are all around us. So when we first meet Pilate here in John's Gospel, he's been called out of his house in verses 28 and 29 into the chill of the early morning to hear a case from a bunch of angry Jewish leaders who are dragging along with them some fellow, Pilate probably knows not who, with whom they are obviously very hot and bothered. I'm not sure if Pilate would have taken this case at such an early hour if these had just been commoners ringing his doorbell. But if the doorman tells him that the folks at the door are wearing the regalia of the local religious leaders, and since religion is so much a part of the warp and woof of this territory that Pilate has been sent to govern, we can perhaps see why, in this case at least, Pilate would have gone out and made an appearance even at such an early hour. And Pilate doesn't just agree to meet with these men. Notice he even so much as goes out to meet with him, with them. Perhaps because he already knows or perhaps the doorman has informed him that owing to the high religious holiday, verse 28, these men are going to feel uncomfortable stepping inside of his house and inside of his courtroom. And so Pilate apparently is an accommodating man or perhaps at least he's a wise chooser of battles. He's skilled at the art of managing people and keeping things calm for himself. And so he goes out to meet these agitated clerics and he asks them what the problem is in verse 29. What accusation do you bring against this man? And they give him a rather nebulous reply in verse 30 as if to say, just trust us, Gov. We know that this guy is a scoundrel. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. But you'll notice in verse 31 here that Pilate is fairly indifferent to these things. Maybe that's because it's early in the morning and they don't really seem to want to present a clear case and he just wants to get back to his morning coffee and his newspaper. Or maybe it's because Pilate is a shrewd leader again who doesn't want to involve himself unnecessarily in local religious squabbles. But either way, At this point, I think we can sympathize with Pilate if we can just forget for a moment what Pilate does not yet know, which is that this is the Son of God being brought to trial before him. He doesn't know that yet, and so I think we can all see why he'd rather these leaders just go squabble amongst themselves and let him get back to the warmth of his house. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your Law. This is some religious dispute. Why don't you guys just go and settle it amongst yourselves? And so this is the first stage of Pilate's demeanor here on this most important Friday in the history of the world. He doesn't know that it's the most important Friday in the history of the world. And when he's confronted on this seemingly normal Friday morning to him by a bunch of petty squabblers, he's understandably indifferent. He's understandably not all that interested in getting into the midst of their argument. 
But then the prosecution in the latter half of verse 31 very shrewdly says something that they know will make Pilate more fully awake. At least I think they're doing it purposefully because they let him know now that the reason they aren't just settling this among themselves and the reason they've come to him for assistance is because they believe that this man whom they have hauled up to Pilate's front porch has committed some crime so heinous as to warrant the death penalty to warrant a Roman crucifixion. And now this is serious, right? Now Pilate has to listen. And not only because they're requesting the death penalty, but because, as Luke tells us, the Jewish leaders also at this point inform Pilate that the accused has made claims of being the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the King, whom the Jews have been awaiting. And as we learn down in chapter 19, verse 12, This is going to set off alarm bells in Pilate's mind. King of the Jews? These people that we have subjugated? Does that mean they're going to rise up against Caesar or reject Caesar as their king? We're not sure if those alarm bells are going off in Pilate's head yet, but probably they are. And whatever the case, there is a noticeable change in Pilate's demeanor in verse 33 after he's presented with the seriousness of these charges against this accused man, Jesus. Now these accusations have suddenly become very much more pressing because these priests have put onto his porch not only a request for the death penalty, but they have brought a man that they are claiming has said to be the king of the Jews. And so now Pilate shifts gears from trying to shoo this all away in verse 31 to stepping back inside the house to meet with the accused face to face, beginning in verse 33. And he asks them at the start an honest question, I think. Are you the king of the Jews? Is what they're saying about you true? Is that what you claim for yourself? And he gets a little perturbed when Jesus asks him in verse 34 whether this is his question. In other words, I think whether... Are you personally interested in this question here, Pilate? Are you just repeating the charges? Pilate gets a little bit annoyed. I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And it's that irritated retort. I'm not a Jew. I'm not interested in this for myself. I just want to know what the charges are. Just answer the question. It's that retort, it seems to me, that lets us in on the fact that indeed, this is not Pilate's personal question. Pilate's not really interested in the spiritual or religious implications of the charges that have been brought before him. He's not interested to know if Jesus really is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. At least it seems to me he's not. What he wants to know is not more about the things of God. He's just actually trying to manage the political crisis that's in front of him. I'm not a Jew. Just answer the question. I'm not interested in these things unless it relates to my governorship. And Jesus answers the question in verse 36, affirming that he is a king and teaching us some important truths about his kingdom in verse 36, which we're not going to dwell on, but which would pay back further consideration on your part. But they are statements about his kingdom which should allay any fears that Pilate may have about whether this man before him is trying to overthrow Caesar. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I'm not trying to overthrow Caesar. We're We're not in for a fight here. My kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate, perhaps just 
making sure he does his due diligence, making sure he covers his bases, making sure he's not missing something, Pilate probes further in verse 37, so you are a king. And then Jesus explains himself even further in the rest of that verse as a king who has come to speak about truth. And then in verse 38 is what seems to me the most crucial statement of all in understanding Pilate and where he's coming from. You say correctly, verse 37, that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You hear the change in the demeanor again? After initial indifference to this man and to this whole affair, Pilate's attention has been gotten in verse 31, and he's been probing this thing seriously now for a moment or two. And although we have a hint in verse 35 that he's not really interested on any spiritual level, Pilate is at least listening to Jesus right now, making sure that he understands the situation in verse 37. But then Jesus drops the T word. Jesus starts speaking about testifying to the truth. And being on the side of truth. And now Pilate's heard all he needs to hear. Now he knows that this really is just a religious goings-on after all. And not something on which he needs to spend any further time. And so he replies, what is truth? And the conversation dies right there. And Pilate walks back out the door and announces his verdict. There's no need to prolong the conversation with Jesus any further. Now that Pilate knows that it's religion, that it's truth that Jesus is on about, he has no further interest in conversing with him. Do you see what's happening here and why? When Pilate asks what is truth in verse 38, I don't believe he's waxing philosophical. I don't think he's retreating inside to his own thoughts and wondering if there really might actually be, after all, a category of absolute truth. What is truth? No, I think he's been interviewing Jesus to see if Jesus might be a political threat. And when he discovers that Jesus' interest is not political, it's not in the kingdoms of this world, but rather it's in what Pilate considers the very abstract category of truth, Pilate's response is once again to be ready just to brush this whole thing aside and move on about his day. What is truth, he says disdainfully. And then he goes outside to nip this thing in the bud and get on with his life. And that's what we see him attempting to do. Claiming a lack of evidence to support the charges in verse 38 and then trying to get Jesus off the books in verse 39 by means of the clemency practices. And then when that doesn't work, at the beginning of chapter 19, he has Jesus scourged and he lets him be slapped around a little bit, which I assume are his efforts to inflict enough pain to appease the Jewish leaders and to get the case closed without having to execute anyone. And so give Pilate credit at least for not just immediately dropping the gavel on crucifixion and just being done with this altogether. He has enough conscience at least not to do that. Enough conscience at least to try and solve this thing halfway equitably. But when the Jewish leaders won't relent, when they call for the death penalty in verse 6, and when Pilate won't relent and give in to them, Pilate finds himself startled, alert again, When the Jews come out with a capital charge in verse 7 that this man not only says he is the Jewish king, but that he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. He ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now 
This has ratcheted up again and even all the more. Pilate is already a little nervous, presumably because the political situation is escalating. He's feeling forced or compelled to execute a man whom he doesn't think deserves it, or alternatively, he's going to have to deal with a very angry crowd. But now in verse 8, with this information about this man claiming to be the Son of God, now Pilate becomes even more afraid, we are told. This time, I think William Hendrickson is right, for spiritual reasons. For spiritual reasons. Now the spiritual implications, the truth claims, the identity of this man sitting in his house can be brushed aside by Pilate no more. He made himself out to be the Son of God. And so Pilate comes back in in verse 9, this time with a question unlike the one in verse 33, this time with a question that is not merely pragmatic or political, but much more personal, it seems to me. Now Pilate is not just trying to close a case and avert a crisis and get this matter out of his hair. Now he's actually worried on a far deeper level. Where are you from, he asks. And he asks it, it seems to me, not for any legal purposes at this point, but because he's starting to ponder the possibility that the man who is sitting before him is no mere man. He's starting to ponder the possibility that the charges against this Jesus, his claim to be the king of the Jews, his claim to be the son of God, I think Pilate is now starting to ponder the possibility that these charges, far from reason to convict Jesus or to write him off as just another religious fanatic, are reasons to tremble before him. And tremble Pilate does in verses 8 and 9. And when Jesus doesn't answer him, He does in verse 10 what many of us do when we're afraid and confused. He gets a little bit angry. And then when Jesus speaks in verse 11, he once again draws Pilate's attention not merely to earthly things, which Pilate is so concerned with most of the time, but to things above. Pilate said to him, verse 10, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He's drawn his attention to God again, and now Pilate is even all the more determined to bring this case to some sort of a just conclusion in verse 12. He doesn't want to be involved in crucifying a man if it might actually be true that he is, if we can borrow the words of Martha, the Christ, the Son of God. Even he who comes into the world. Pilate is trembling over who this man might be standing before him and over what might be done to him if Pilate's not careful. And Pilate is the governor. He has the authority to release Jesus. Remember from verse 10? Why doesn't he just do it? Because Jesus' accusers get into his ear in verse 12, reminding him how bad the optics will be if he does. How bad a look this could be. How bad politically this could turn out for him if Pilate is found acquitting a man who has made what might be considered by Caesar, Pilate's boss, treasonous claims to be a king. And so with his own career on the line, Pilate relents in verses 13 through 16 and delivers the Son of God over to his death. But what does it all mean? We have followed Pilate from indifference in verses 28 through 31 when Jesus was first dragged up to his doorstep to political alarm beginning in verse 31b when he heard about Jesus' claims to be a king and when the Jews requested the death penalty. And then 
to indifference of a spiritual sort in verses 38 and following when he realizes this whole deal about overthrowing Caesar is not what we need to worry about. This Jesus is interested in truth, not in Caesar's throne. And then we follow him to alarm again in chapter 19, verse 7 and following, this time spiritual alarm, it seems to me, when he's told of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And then from spiritual alarm, finally just to political expedience in verses 12 and following when he is reminded what might happen to him if he is found to be supporting a king not called Caesar. These are the vacillations of Pilate's demeanor that I mentioned, but what are the reasons for them? What are the pivot points? Think this out with me. Why was Pilate indifferent when the lynch mob first showed up on his doorstep? Partly perhaps because he didn't yet realize that they were intent on a lynching that day, yes, but also because their concerns, it seemed to him at first, must have only to do, in verse 31, with their own religion, and not so much with anything that was really practical to himself, so he thought. And as I said, we probably all get this. Pilate didn't want to be involved in someone else's squabbles, and maybe he had already seen enough of the religion of these priests to really not think it had all that much to offer him anyway. But then why did he become slightly alarmed in verses 33 and following? Why did he go ahead and decide to take this case seriously? Again, yes, he discovered it was a capital case, but also, as we learned from Luke, because suddenly it had political bearing if Jesus really was claiming to be a king. Suddenly the case became practical to Pilate. Suddenly there became a pragmatic reason for him to care about this Jewish squabble and this man named Jesus. Because maybe it wasn't just a little squabble after all. And I think so far, so good. So far, I think we might all track with Pilate, not messing with other people's foolish quarrels, but getting involved when he realized that there could be problems for himself and for the community and for the the empire if he didn't. Pilate is so far probably correctly pragmatic. He tries to stay out of this affair for wisely pragmatic reasons in verse 31, and then he inserts himself into it in verse 33 also for wisely pragmatic reasons. Now, pragmatism as a life philosophy is not wise, of course. That is to say, if we allow expediency to be our chief value, if we're always thinking about what we think will work instead of what is right and good and true, and that's pragmatism as a life philosophy, being more concerned for what supposedly works than for what is right and good and true, if we adopt that as a philosophy of life, we're walking far out of the ways of God, as we shall see. But there are times when making an expedient, practical choice in a given moment can be a wise choice, and that's what I would say is true about Pilate's pragmatism in the first few verses of this passage. But he is a pragmatist. And we need to notice now that Pilate's pragmatism continues to dictate his demeanor toward this case and toward this Jesus, even when the pragmatic approach, I think you will agree, is no longer acceptable or wise. Because do you remember what it is that moves Pilate from political alarm in verse 31 into an obvious spiritual indifference in verse 38? Why does Pilate stop listening to Jesus? It's because Jesus makes clear that his kingdom is not of this world, that he's no political threat, and that what he has come to do is to be a king of truth, to testify to the truth. And this isn't very practical in Pilate's mind. It serves no pragmatic purpose, apparently. He's not even sure if there's an answer, verse 38, for what truth actually even is. 
All that he's concerned about is that after hearing that Jesus is concerned about truth and a kingdom not of this world, Pilate just says well, to himself, well, my pragmatic problem has been solved. Jesus is not concerned over earthly kingship, and so my problems are fixed. Why trouble over these religious matters, these concerns about truth? I'm finished here. And so here's this man with the opportunity of a lifetime to talk face to face with Jesus Christ in his own home, no less. And when the conversation turns to truth, when it turns to spiritual matters, when it turns to the things of God and not to things that seem immediately practical to Pilate, he loses interest. He doesn't want to talk about God. He just wants to fix the problem that's on his desk on this particular Friday morning and to do what's expedient and pragmatic in terms of the overall job of keeping peace in Jerusalem and of keeping himself, frankly, in the category of the friends of Caesar. And so Pilate has gone from wise practicality to very unwise practicality, from justifiable pragmatism to short-sighted secular pragmatism. But then the spiritual realm breaks in again in verse 7, doesn't it? This time not directly through the voice of Jesus, but through the voices of his accusers who quote him as claiming to be the Son of God. And now Pilate begins to be unnerved a little bit and paying attention a little bit again. He begins to tremble. Not this time as a governor who sees a problem on his hands, but this time he trembles as a man who sees a problem in his life. He's no longer just pragmatically alarmed. He is spiritually alarmed. Because what if this Jesus really is a king? What if he really is the Messiah? What if he really is the Son of God? Where are you from? Pilate says in verse 8. He's alarmed. But notice again what changes his demeanor. Notice what snaps him out of his alarm. Once again, it is short-sighted, God-ignoring pragmatism. What will work for me politically? What is expedient for me career-wise? What will work for me here and now in this life? Because when Pilate is confronted with the danger to his career path in verse 12, when Pilate is reminded that he might fall out of favor with Caesar, when Pilate heard these words, verse 13, the ball started, started rolling toward crucifixion. And what I'm trying to show you with all this time that I've spent is that all throughout this passage, Pilate is driven by what is expedient, by what is pragmatic, by what is practical, quote-unquote, here and now. And that may be well and good when a bunch of cranks show up at your door early on a Friday morning and want you to spend time with their foolishness. I don't have time for your nonsense. Go figure it out yourself. And expedience may also be well and good when you realize that a situation has been put on your plate, like Pilate realized in verse 31, that really does require shrewd, practical action. But you see, the problem for Pilate and the problem for so many people, including some of us, perhaps, by natural bent, all of us, really, apart from Christ, is that we are pragmatists, we are expedientists like Pilate when it comes to the things of God. We just do what we think is practical for us. How easy is it for some of us, instead of really thinking about what God would have us do in a given situation, instead of really carefully weighing the claims of Christ on our lives, how easily many times we, like Pilate, just do, whether it's with our money or our Sundays or our time or our decision-making, we just do what seems expedient right here and now. 
How easy it is to be so wrapped up in our own plans, our own success, our own career path, our own American dream, our own to-do list, our own financial comfort, our own emotions, that we set truth claims to one side and just try to make life, quote, work out for us. How easy is it to be so wrapped up in what we think is expedient that we set the fear of the Lord aside as Pilate did in verses 13 and following in the areas where the fear of the Lord will not advance our own personal comfort and agendas. Some of us are perhaps doing this in our own lives right now. So busy with our plans, with our agendas, with what we think will work for us that we will sell out Jesus for the sake of expedience. We might not think of it that way, But when you decide that, you know, although God's word says this, although the truth is this, I'm actually going to do this. Because it just seems more practical, frankly. I think it'll work out better for me. What you're doing in that moment is joining Pilate and claiming, what is truth? What is truth when I've got bills to pay? What is truth when I really need this promotion? What is truth when I've got this sexual appetite? What is truth when I really want some Sunday overtime? What is truth when tithing seems just actually unreasonable? What is truth when a little fudge dripped over my tax return could actually go a long way? What is truth when this raunchy or heretical movie is going to be really exciting and well done? What is truth when I might get fired or be thought poorly of by clinging to the truth? Jesus, you see in this passage, is face-to-face with a pragmatist, face-to-face with a man for whom expedience, in the end, proves a more pressing concern than truth and righteousness and the Son of God. And Jesus might be face-to-face through this passage this morning with some pragmatists in this room, some of us who have gotten into the habit of choosing what we think will work what seems right in our eyes instead of what is right and good and true. Do your commitments vacillate like pilots here based on what you think will work for you? Do you notice that pilot is back and forth here? Are you like that because of what seems expedient? Do your interests in the things of God wax and wane like pilots? based on how practical you think these things are for you? Are you a believer in expedience or in truth? Are you a pragmatist or a Christian? And if the latter, are you living like it? Am I living like it? Are we willing to hear Jesus' voice today in verse 37, and instead of turning away from him, are we willing to turn to him once again in obedience and faith? In the truth. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth hears my voice. Do you hear his voice this morning? Are you listening and will you follow? Is his voice more appealing to you, calling you to truth? than the voices of all the chief priests in your life whispering in your ear on behalf of the devil that your allegiance really needs to be to Caesar and to yourself. Whoever or whatever Caesar may be in your life, whatever it is the devil wants you to serve rather than King Jesus. Is it more important for you to be a friend of Caesar or of truth? 
Of the idols in your life, in other words, or of Christ? Is it more important for you to be a friend of a pay raise or of Christ and of truth? Of a sports team or of Christ and of truth? Of the cool kids at school or of Christ and truth? Of popularity at work or a promotion or of Christ and of truth? Of acceptance in our ever-secularizing culture or of Christ and of truth? I'm not saying that any of us have officially adopted pragmatism as our life's philosophy in the sort of way that we would be card-carrying members of the American Pragmatist Society, if there is such a thing. We, we wouldn't put it on our, on our lapel, is what I'm saying. But you see, pragmatism, the choosing of expedience over truth, the preference for that which works for me over that which is right and good and biblical, pragmatism is in the very air that we breathe. It's why people say things like, what's true for you may not be true for me. And I hope you can see from the very nature of that sentence that they have redefined truth in terms of pragmatism. They've redefined truth in terms of what is useful. Because they're not talking simply about what's true. They're talking about what's true for you and what's true for me. Which is just a disguised way of saying what I think works for me which is just a disguised way of saying what I want, frankly. What's true for you may not be, frankly, what I want. That's the air that we breathe in the 21st century. This is the official philosophy of many people around us, even if they don't put a name to it. And it's been mankind's philosophy, not just in the 21st century, but all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Eve chose expedience over truth. When Eve chose the supposed usefulness of the forbidden fruit and Adam with her carrying even greater responsibility, they chose the expedience, the usefulness of the fruit over the truth of God which told them not to eat it on pain of death. What was true was that the fruit was forbidden and it would lead to death and God was good and wise in telling them that and in limiting them in that way. But what seemed expedient... What was supposedly useful in Genesis 3.6 was that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And Eve and Adam following her chose expedience. They chose what seemed like it would work and work right now and most importantly work for themselves rather than what was true according to to the word of God. And Pilate is doing the same thing here in John 18 and 19. He's asking what will work, he thinks, and what he thinks will work, frankly, for himself, rather than pursuing with Jesus this thing called truth. He's got this amazing opportunity, and he sets it aside because it's not expedient. And that's how we're all tempted to live, aren't we? Just looking so often, no farther than what is immediately in front of us and what seems good to us and what we think will work out for us in our circumstances and either just forgetting what God has said about certain things or never bothering to study the Bible and find out or pushing truth to the back of our minds in order that we can do what is or at least what seems to us expedient. And I do add the word seems purposefully there and not only in that sentence but Multiple times in this sermon, I've talked about what seems expedient, what we think will be useful, what will supposedly work, and I've, I've used those qualifying words purposely. 
Because sin is never actually expedient. It never actually works. It's never actually useful. If we believe in taking the long view of God's plans for us and don't simply fixate on the here and now, and if we really believe that there is greater value simply in pleasing God than in getting our own way right here in the here and now, we will find that rejecting truth, however expedient it seems to be, is never advantageous ultimately. It's never expedient. It never works out for us really. Not in the long run, and not if we think that it's actually most advantageous, even in the short run, simply to please our Father in heaven. If this is our definition of expedience and of what works, to please the Lord, no matter what, and not just to get what we want, if that's our definition of what is expedient, then truth will always be the most expedient thing, even in the short run. And if this is our definition of expedience and of what works to please the Lord no matter what, well then our worldly wise pragmatism, we will have to admit, never actually works out. Doing what is right may not always seem to be the most practical thing, but both in the long run and even in the short, God always honors those who honor him. And you can be sure in the long run and often in the short that your sin will find you out. It's true, Pilate's pragmatism worked out for him, quote-unquote, in the short term. Pilate didn't fall foul of Caesar. He didn't let this Jesus thing ruin his career. Just like he hoped, his pragmatism seemed to work out for him in the short term. But what did God think about all this? In the short term, not just the long. What was God thinking about it? Would that Pilate had cared about that? And what was the long-term effectiveness of Pilate's strategy? Will we worship Christ with Pilate someday around the throne in glory? I would be glad of it. I would be glad to hear of his repentance. Maybe we will, but there's no indication here that Pilate turned around and came to Christ. And if he did, it would have been in spite of his pragmatism and in repentance for it and in forgiveness of it, and surely not because of it. Pilate's actions here were only ever going to be capable of producing short-term gains and not even real gains if our ultimate goal is to please the Lord. And the same is true when we choose expediency over truth. It's true, life often does actually go more smoothly even here and now when we follow Christ. But it doesn't always work that way. And that's not the big thing in Christianity anyway, is it? Jesus hasn't come as a self-help guru. Jesus didn't come to give us some life hacks He hasn't come to help us figure out what works for us and what makes for our best life now. Jesus came into the world, verse 37, to testify to the truth, which sometimes seems expedient, but which often goes right against the grain of what we think will work, of what we think will work right now, and of what we think will work for us. But you see, whether truth is immediately useful or not, it will finally be what is best for us every single time. And whether truth seems expedient, it always actually is, even in the here and now, if we consider it most expedient to please the Lord. And whether truth seems practical or not, it's still always true. And we must live like we believe that. You say correctly that I am a king, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears 
my voice. And if you haven't been of the truth in these recent days, if this sermon has convicted you that you're ignoring what you know is true and replacing it with what you feel is expedient, listen to Jesus' voice today. Listen to him on the cross as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And know that the answer is so that your sin and your ignoring of the truth and your choosing of expedience might be forgiven yet. That's why God has forsaken him. Listen to him on the cross saying, It is finished. Your ignoring of truth and choosing expedience is covered by the blood of Jesus if you're one of his people. It really is finished. And you're forgiven when you come and repent and seek him in faith. Listen to him saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And realize that he will forgive you, even if you have known what you are doing, because his blood covers all of our sins when we walk in the light. Listen to his voice and hear mercy for the person that is turned away and turn back to him, this merciful Jesus. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice.